You're listening to the Property Nomads podcast, your one-stop shop for property, business, and travel-related content, tying it all together to help guide you towards success. If you like the podcast, please share with others, subscribe, and leave us a review. So get your gear together and let's get going. Hi, Robert Matt here, 50th episode of the Property Nomads podcast, and we've got an absolute blockbuster of an interview for you, Paul Sewell, OBE. But before we do that, as part of the 50th episode, you'll notice we've got a new introduction. We just want to say a very quick thank you to yourselves uh, for supporting us. Yeah, just thank you very much for all your ongoing support. It means the world to us. The fact that we've reached our 50th episode, it's just amazing. And we just feel it's like a great accomplishment. So thank you again. And we look forward to bringing you more value and more content. Enjoy this episode. Enjoy this interview. It is an absolute blockbuster. The biggest one we've had to date. Really, really good. Loads of information. So enjoy. Thank you for your continued support. I'll feed us in. I'll feed us in. Uh, Paul, well, thank you very much for taking time out to sit with me today. It's fantastic being in the offices. Property Nomads Podcast. We're in 58 countries at the moment, which is wow. really, really good. And I'm aware that some people might not know what an OBE is. What is an OBE? Well, the letters stand for Order of the British Empire, and it's an honour granted by the Queen at the recommendation of the Cabinet Office. Uh, and there are various honours, knighthood's the top one, you go down to CBE, OBE, MBE, and then British Empire Medal. And the honours system tends to recognise people in our community and society in the UK for doing something over and above the day job, I guess. And you got awarded that in 2011 for services to business and the community. So what, I mean, that can mean quite a lot of things to many different people. So. Was, was there anything specific that you done that got you an OBE or was it just continuous and dedicated service above and beyond? I think I've done a lot of work in civil society outside of the Sewell Group, starting with the Chamber of Commerce, then into the various government quangos like the Urban Regeneration Company, Asset and the Local Enterprise Partnership now and, uh, and, and stuff that's outside the business but relates to the community. And that's because we're a community company. We, we serve a community we work a lot for the public sector within that community. So to be out there and understanding them, it's not. It's not. A, it wasn't a gig to to a drive to get an honour. That's the that's the last thing. It was to enable us to do better business in our community, and I guess sort of that that got recognised. How did that feel receiving? How did that make you feel receiving a sort of you know a letter you get from from the Queen? Do you have to keep it you know under wraps for a little bit and not tell anyone else? Well, I thought it was a parking fine. <laughs> or a speeding ticket or something like that. You do when you get the crest on the front and you say, what the hell is this? And you open it and and it says, uh, the Prime Minister is minded to recommend to the Queen that you were awarded this. Can you uh, can you respond to say that if recommended, you would accept it? And, uh, and being from my background, uh, you, you honestly think these things, this honours stuff is a load of bollocks until somebody offers you one. And then it changes and your mind goes, honestly it goes from the personal thing of the, the personal reward to the, the reward to the people around you, your family, your, your family that supported you and all the work you've done. Your mum and dad, were, or in my case, were here to see it and that's always a regret. The company that, that is part of the fabric of my life. So a lot of people say this, but I truly mean it. It is an honor for all those people around and somebody's had to choose somebody 
the Queen for reasons best known to herself chose me but it's actually you, you very quickly believe it's something that reflects on everybody around you. That's very poignant so rather because some people take the accolade on and go yeah you know, hands up that's all me fantastic congratulations mm. you're effectively saying it's it's a great thing to have you know those letters as well but in fact actually it's a, it's a dedication to everyone that works within the soul group oh absolutely and i can graze my cattle on cottingham green i can be, be remarrying st paul's cathedral you get this book that gives you all these tangible benefits it's like a holiday brochure <laughs> it gives you all these tangible benefits none of which you would take up but it's just so impressive to know you can drive your geese over westminster bridge <laughs> brilliant so just t take advantage of a couple of the bylaws that people might not know about them in the uk <laughs> yeah how was having how was having that accolade i mean has having that accolade changed yourself in any way or has it changed the way that you know souls does business or was it just a case of you know, it's, it's great to have this but let's just carry on and keep doing what we're doing oh god yeah i think you've got to do that i think at the same time my local university made me an honorary 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 doctor doctor of science and they both happened at the same time and it does give you this from a, from a kid who failed his 11 plus, was told he wasn't good enough when he was expelled from his secondary school, for somebody sometimes later to think, actually, you're all right, uh, has got to have a boost of confidence, hasn't it? And uh, and if you use that in the right way to know the good stuff you're doing is actually recognised and uh, and it, it, it's an age to keep on doing it and do it even more with even more energy because we've always been an organisation that's believed that, you do business for a higher purpose than just transactional making money value to shareholders and all that you, you do it in somehow to make people's lives better and if it doesn't it's not worth doing as Branson says and I completely agree with him so if you're a business that by way of doing business the higher purpose of we work in a community within that community and the way we do business hopefully improves life in that community that makes for good business it makes you emotionally attractive a business makes you emotionally attractive to come and work for. And this is this virtual upward spiral. It's not a matter of do-gooding, it's not a matter of CSR, it's not a matter of gong chasing. It's a matter of believing that that's the way you do business. And the other stuff follows. That will have to be ingrained in in a culture that's been developed over time. I mean, you know, Sewell started in 1876, family owned, it's been going for a very, very long time and, you know, well done for, for that. So has, that culture always been there or has that been ingrained over time and adapted over time? Uh, I think we're 140 years old, but effectively this company I believe is 20 years old. Uh, cultures, are, you mentioned the term culture, it's huge here. Uh, we believe a, a strong culture is so, so important. And you get a culture, well you get a culture whether you want one or not, you know that. You either get it from the bottom up by default and you might get a culture you don't want or top-down from leaderships in its various forms with a strong set of values and a decent purpose and that creates a culture and it's created one at Sewell we're really protective of and we even hire for cultural fit above technical competence to be honest uh, so protective are we of our culture because your culture gives you your personality your personality reflects on your brand and people come and work for and do business with those things uh, and it takes what we what we do business in above a commodity, something beyond a commodity that you just buy as one. Uh, so I think that's 
yeah, that's that, that's been a bit of a secret of ours, really. Create a, an attractive personality, do business for a community within a community, and hope people see you as emotionally attractive and they actually want to do business with you. And as you say, that will then create this sort of continual upward spiral that just leads to, well, yeah. a bigger, well, bigger and better things, I suppose. And, 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 really and critically, of course, when you cock up, and we are all human beings, and we're all staffed by human beings, and we all cock up. People give you an even break if you think that you're anything approaching good guys. Do you find that the the culture that you have within Souls um, matches, or sorry, actually, I'll never rephrase that. The values that you'd have in Souls match your personal values, or do you have slightly different personal values, or are you, have you just got a complete level of congruence throughout? I think. To be perfectly honest, the way the way Sewells has evolved, we've got a new comms lead a couple of years ago, and I talked about uh, how the personality of the business was very important to me, and she said, "Well, it would be because that's your personality, Paul. You know, when the way this particular business has, has evolved over forty years and my position in it, I guess it's going to be as much of my personality. Won't be going forward. You know, hopefully the values will still be there and." And, uh, and we need to steward those. But uh, I think if a business has got to have a person, if you get a big leader like Branson, we've mentioned Branson before, haven't we? You know, Branson has got this twinkle in the eye sense of fun allied to superb customer service. And that's Branson's personality across any Virgin business, isn't it? Be it Virgin trains, money, finance, air, air, air travel or anything. So I think when you have a, a company like ours, which is a, a metal stand, a family, a big, a big family company, uh, with a very recognisable chief at that company. Uh, whether you like me or whether I like myself or not, that's the situation. Uh, what I do is very important to the company, so I try to live those values and try to have a bit of integrity around those values. What does a typical working day look like for you when you're here? Now. Uh, now I'm, I work exclusively on the business rather than in the business. Uh, I don't have an office. I call in, I have, I have great fun working with people who create and achieve and they do the day job, they deliver the goods and services, etc. Uh, I chair the Topco board. I chair a couple of the other school group boards as well as sit on the boards of external bodies like the Local Enterprise Partnership. That's working for the business rather than in it, so I'm on the governance side. Uh, I like to do some of the special events because I like that stuff. We've just had an event here in Business Week called The Kid Done Good where we signed the Social Mobility Pledge, the National Social Mobility Pledge with the MP called Justin Greening who pioneered it. She was up here and we had 13 Hull icons who have all come from very disadvantaged upbringings or failures to become Hull icons so we can show kids in Hull on council estates or have failed exams, it's not all over, look at this 13. I like doing that type of stuff uh, and I'm, 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 I've got the luxury of being free free to do it. We have a big console convention once a year, uh, third week uh, January. When we come back after the Christmas holidays, we've got a very disparate, diverse group, 500 people spread across Yorkshire in facilities management, retail, construction, investment, and they come together for that week and we have one convention where we get together and celebrate what we do and reflect on the last year and plan for next year and end up with a big Oscars ceremony. Well, I like to get involved in that because that's a, a tone setter. So uh, 
and probably a bit of an ambassadorial role as well. Uh, that's the stuff I like doing, it's the stuff I'm good at doing and fortunately there's a whole range of people at this office now working away at stuff they're a lot better at than me. That's one of the key facets I suppose of business isn't it? Is, is surrounding yourself, if you've got a particular strength that you have um, and then surround yourself Absolutely. with people that have other that's strengths. right, Robert. That's absolute key to success in business or success in anything. I think know what you're great at. We're all great at a couple of things, uh, and it's generally what we're happy is doing. If you find out early enough in life what you're great at and you stick to that, you at success is inevitable. It's only people who don't find out or want to be great, uh, want to do stuff that they're not great at, they get they get frustrated. So here we uh, we make sure we we all practice self awareness. We know ourselves. We know what we're great at, we're not so great at, and we surround ourselves with people who are good at what we're not good at, and therefore we create that create that team. A lot of people, when I'm out about speaking to people and listening to what people are saying, a few people say, focus on your strengths. And then a few people say, well, if you've got your weaknesses, you need to work on your weaknesses and improve them. Would you say it's a little bit of both, or it is a case of just work on your strengths, you know, accept who you are with your weaknesses and just strength, 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 focus, 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 and that will get you further in life. I certainly where I am. You know, I do I do finance? No. I'm a great technology, not a chance. Uh, I think I I see the bigger picture quite quickly and scenarios from the bigger picture. Uh, I do the people thing because I'm actually a footballer and a football coach. I was a fully qualified football coach at 19 after I had a bad injury and uh, because football was my first love and I got into coaching I knew what it was to get the best talent in the building and get that talent with a unity of purpose and get it to high energy levels uh, and actually it's all to do in business transfer all those principles from sports into business and that's what we do here we're hopefully home for talent and uh, and we get that talent up with a unity of purpose, all pointing in the same direction. Get the energy levels up, and uh, that's why I do really. That's what I'm good at. I'm just like a football coach that's come into business. I love football. We'll never have to touch on. We'll have to touch on football. So, when when you were growing up, was football the first first love, the first passion? Exactly, exactly before a bad injury happening. Is that where you wanted to go? Oh you wanted God, to that's all I ever wanted to do. My 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 dad. My dad's one of 20 kids for a start, and eight of them went in the fruit trade. And so my dad was, was by the time I was born, uh, my siblings were a lot older than me, 13, 14 years older than me, and I came along later. And they were running, helping run dad's fruit and veg business, four shops in York, one, uh, four shops in Hull, one in York, stolen York Market. And uh, I never really fancied it, to be honest. It, early mornings and stuff like that <laughs> looked like a bit like hard work to me. So I... Uh, I was reasonably good at football and when I, when I failed my 11 plus uh, I went to Cottingham Secondary School and they had a really good football team so I wasn't too bothered about that and uh, and because that got me to school uh, I was spotted by Hull City at age 10 which was one of the early academies in the country in those days believe it or not and then at 16, 17 uh, Blackpool who were in the first division then all the premiership it is now wanting me to go I went and ended up offering me a full time contract and, and right through those years that's all I ever wanted to do it got me to stop on at school when a couple of great teachers at Cottingham School wanted to book a crap system of selection at 11 and prove it wrong they found something I was great at which was maths pure maths applied maths physics A levels 
and then when I got my injury at 19 and I had to look for something else to do something outdoors I could quite easily go to university and something outdoors was building which I'd never considered chance thing again I went to Leeds University in a fortnight's notice met a guy called Dennis Sewell there same name pure coincidence same day same course same city thought you can't make this up uh, and that chance meeting eventually led to us uniting back here five years later in Dennis's family business so uh, do, ne- never discount chance meetings in life Woody Allen says 80% of success is showing up and I believe that well evidently so if that's if that's the case do you also then uh, believe in the law of attraction uh, explain what that is so if you for example if you believe I think that, I know what it is but you might mean something different uh, I, I could be a bit of a waffler sometimes <laughs> to be honest with you um, so if, if you firmly believe in something like you know um, wealth is attracted to me or successful business people are attracted to it, and you keep telling yourself that and you keep believing that and then at some point that does happen because yeah, you yeah. kept saying it it happens that's yeah. in a nutshell it's, a, it's self-belief isn't it and, and then you look for the good and find it rather than look for the bad and, and find that uh, I don't know about law of attraction. I am an optimist, and I, I'm not one of these glass half full, glass half empty optimists. There's times in my life I'm just happy to have a glass, and then sometimes you, there's a little stain on the glass, so I don't like it. I think optimists can see the upside and downside in anything or any person, but choose to focus on the upside. It's not as though they don't know the downside; they just choose to focus on the upside. And I think I've sort of always been like that. Who do you support? Uh, well, I I have this mental. Of- illness that makes me support my hometown club right the way through the bad days I mean I play I was, I was there for for six years when I was a youngster uh, I uh, I played against them uh, I, when I was with Blackpool uh, I uh, uh, and I've been following them ever since through good or ill my second team is absolutely Liverpool because uh, my son uh, in the Kelly Dalgleish years etc adored Liverpool uh, when there was uber successful kids always go to the uber success there's a generation of manchester united and then there's a generation of whatever uh, so no I, I like the culture around the two port cities i think i like uh you know there's a certain disadvantage in both both port cities obviously liverpool got its music scene with the the beatles and stuff in in the 60s and then they got its shankly turned this liverpool football club from a from a second division folksy little club to this world iconic brand uh, that was so so critical to Liverpool as a city. So uh, yes, it's it's whole city at home and, and Liverpool when I'm when I want to watch the Premiership. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that because I get a lot of stick for being a Reading fan because that's where I'm from. And then I always say Liverpool's world. And never two. never follow a team that plays in hoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm about 25 years too late for that. <laughs> yeah, we are, aren't we? But, uh, anyway, yeah, by, by, by the by. Do um, you find that having... So you had your focus on football, obviously suffered um, a bad injury, and that got taken away from you. So do you find that that you've turned that heartache into success, or it was a case of a, just a mental reset of, look, this has happened, it's bad, but what's happened's happened, I now need to focus on something else and, and you, as you've alluded to a couple of chance meetings and, and you are where you are yeah. the romantic in me would like to say yes to that I, I think it's only lo- looking back that I realised I was finished 
because I broke my leg at 19 playing an FA Cup match. I came back and then I did my ACL. So I, I virtually spent, and of course rehab wasn't like it, it is now then. And so I just dropped back from playing up front to a midfield role. I still played semi-professionally uh, and thought I was doing okay. But looking back, was effectively my football career was effectively over. Uh, but no, I and then then I went into coaching and coaching my 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 young boys team, and uh, you learn a lot from that as well. You put a lot back, you know, putting the nets up, cleaning the dog muck off the park pitch before they can play, and that's real grassroots stuff, isn't it? Uh, and I think you've got to you've got to sample it all. Then you you appreciate the highs in life, don't you? When you've had the lows, you appreciate being a, of a certain level when you've had to do the other stuff. Uh, so now I wouldn't regret any of that. And uh, the whole career, it was to, it was meant to be, wasn't it? Because I was probably never going to be a you know a top class footballer. But what I learned through football and its setup and its setbacks, etc., I've I've put into the business side of it. And we've been a bit more successful at that, I think. Going back to a point you made earlier on, and you mentioned about the fact that you were working in the business and now you're working on the business. Uh, was that um, a transition that, that happened over time? Something you wanted to do? Or was it wake up one morning and go, well, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too involved here, I need to do something else? Uh, strangely enough, it was the recommendation and, and request from uh, a non-exec director we had back in the day at Seoul, he became a mentor of mine. We were at that stage just a, a really good building contracting company. The recession had hit. Uh, the big boys were coming down into our markets. Uh, the, the pond was getting smaller. The crocodiles were getting bigger. We knew we had to change. And uh, a guy was called Jeff Gordon, who said to us both, because it was Dennis and I, he said, One of, you're both working in the business at present. One of you's got to start working on the business, on business development, growing its brand and personality. and and uh, standing out there in the community with the clients. And uh, I was the gobby one, so he chose me. And I then went to the most uh, difficult six months of my career because I was an absolute fish out of water. You know, all of a sudden you, you, you're building buildings, going around building sites, organizing it all, having the satisfaction of seeing these buildings be created and finished. And all of a sudden somebody says to you, go out there and move us into different markets and get more business, etc." And I just well, I thought, what's networking? What's, you know, so you go to the opening of an envelope and see whether you'd meet somebody. And I was bad at that because I'm actually a pretty shy person. I, if I go into a room, I would go in a corner and hope people come and talk to me. Uh, people are really surprised with that. Uh, and in, in truth, we were with one of our chairs, Alan Johnson, yesterday, the MP and former Home Secretary, now literary icon and best-selling author uh, and he said to me once I, I think nobody networks and works around better than Alan does everybody thinks he's saying hello to them smiling at them and he revealed to me he's actually painfully shy and he has to well himself up to go into the room and do that I said well Alan that's exactly me I'm so shy but you have to make such an effort to do it and uh, so that six months was fraught really and uh, and I learned then, actually, you just build proper meaningful relationships. You can't go selling things like double glaze, you know. Your, your sincerity shines through what you believe in, what you're offering, the, the partnerships you form, the relationships you form, the networks you form. That's long-term what, what, what creates the... In fact, somebody said some, something to me early in the noughties 
that the biggest uh, assets in the 21st century for, you, for a business was your emotional attractiveness and your network. Your network would be your net worth and needs reflecting on your balance sheet. So at that time we said to everybody at Sewell, uh, the more people in the Sewell group that have more relationships outside the Sewell group, the more business we will do. So we then took business development away from being a role and a person's responsibility to everybody's responsibility. And it's just about being emotionally attractive, forming good relationships, delivering your promises. If you have a cock up, run towards your problems, you know, have integrity, and then people will understand. And, and maybe if you deliver some good stuff, want to do business with you again. Yeah, sometimes the most honest conversations are sometimes the most challenging ones because of the news that you might have to portray to I don't know, various investors or you know, I suppose I can imagine over time you've had projects, uh, projects that have gone smoothly and you've had projects that yeah, might absolutely. not have gone according to plan. So do, you, do you know, Robert, there's, what I've learned over my career is that people really shy away from the difficult conversation. And if you ha ever have, need to have a difficult conversation, be direct, be kind about it, but have it, it actually clears the decks for progress forward into the future. And if people won't have the difficult conversation, resentment builds, relationships are fractured. And we say this internally at the Soul Group, you know, if any if you've got a stone in your shoe about anything, let's have it let's have it out, you know, because once we get it out we can make progress. Would you say that's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned in business or are there any other key lessons that you've learned from various mentors over the years that you've been able to pass on to the group? Oh wow. Uh, well, people do business with people to start with. Uh, you know, relationships are critical, which we just said. Uh, never compromise your quality for anything, even if it means maybe not making enough money or not making any money on a deal or a transaction. If you compromise your quality, you let something pernicious into your company that, that spreads and grows like a cancer. So we say here, we always do the right thing no matter what. You know, every day as we speak now, there'll be a hundred people looking at a situation. They know what the right thing is to do. And they also know what the easy thing is to do and maybe the commercially attractive thing is to do. But if you've got 500 people who are inclined to do the right thing at that point of decision, that moment of truth, ultimately, that's better for the business. It creates the right brand and personality. And as you alluded to as well, that is how you build a successful business. Be honest, be truthful, have the difficult conversations, stick to your values, and if you can ingrain it in the culture as you so clearly have done, it's no wonder that yeah. business is flying. Yeah, well there's, well, there's two things we've done in the 21st century, since the millennium. We've realised that we're in a war for talent. The raw material coming out of the education system is becoming less inclined for business. You know, we, we, we say we've got a skill shortage, we probably haven't, we've got an attitude shortage the right characters and attitudes out leaving the education system. We hire for attitude and train for skill. If people want to buy into the culture, culture, we'll get them the skills. So there's so few of these really good people kicking around now. Businesses are in just as much a war for talent in their businesses as they are a war for customers. So we wanted to be a home for talent, to win the war for talent, and that talent in the 21st century would need the appropriate technology platform to work on. Increasingly, 
the appropriate so all our people can work, work remotely on the same drawing the same this has been prevailing for years so we invest a lot of money in our technology so our talent can come here and work as they want and that's increasing you know if you get a really talented person in their mid-20s now just graduated or whatever they'll go to where they're buying to the values where they have the right technology to work and where they feel at home and uh, and I think those those are two two key things to our success. One thing that we like to touch upon quite a bit is is the importance of mentoring. You've said earlier on that you've had various mentors over the years. Do you think you would be where you are now without having any form of mentoring at all? Uh, well, life and business life and leadership can be a lonely place at times, and. Uh, and to have somebody to go and have a natter to and a little bit of a rant to and a little bit of I'm seeing this thing like this is out the way you see it. I think we all need somebody and we generally it's certainly outside of our company and outside the industry you know it really amuses me when I see these industry gatherings where our retail lot do it they all go down and gather with fellow retailers and wonder why they're all the same ultimately and a good friend of mine's just been to a national ambulance conference because she, she's the chair of Yorkshire Ambulance Service and they all go to a, down to a national ambulance conference. I've never done that. We've always, let's, let's choose the wackiest place to go. So I always say here, if we want to do anything, like we had a new help desk coming into our facilities management business, that's the hub of everything, requests coming in, going out, everything, piece of technology kit. I always say, who does it best in the world? So we'll go see that. And people say, well, that might be in Scandinavia. We'll go see that then. We've just come back from uh, Tokyo because we've researched out that they are the best convenience retailers in the world because it's a city of 50 million people with no big box retailers. So the convenience retail is pretty good. Go to Tokyo. Sounds expensive. It's damn cheap because there's nothing hard about going nicking somebody else's ideas, bringing them back and making sure it's appropriate for your business and your community and culture. So, uh, so there, there's mentorships and you develop relationships that become mentors. Some of them have been friends. Never had a sort of a formal mentoring situation where I've put an advert out in the mail for a mentor and chosen the appropriate one. It's always sort of come by. And I think it's a mutual support network. You might not call them mentors. I've got lots of really good mates that will meet up for a coffee and have a natter to totally different businesses and they'll tell me things that they're seeing about my business and vice versa. So there's that, and then going out to see really good practice, wherever it is, and it's always inspirational. Good point, well, I mean, hunt down the best, go and find what they're doing, replicate what they're doing, and, and make it appropriate to you. Make it appropriate during. The, the other end of it, of course, is, you know, and before you, that's why I was slightly late to come to you, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, we, we mentor businesses uh, because I've got no operational day-to-day -day, uh, role now. I've got half a dozen businesses that we're growing and mentoring, a few more individuals that will come along and say, can we have a natter? And I always say yes, because I get as much from that conversation as they do. It grounds you. It reminds you what life was like at that sort of stage where you're trying to save for a mortgage or you're trying to grow a business and nobody will lend you any capital or you know you you can't get enough customers because your competition is doing that over there and it really grounds you and going back to first principles is always good that's good that you get a lot of people come to you because they've seen what you're doing and and again it's, it's good to 
be able to you know sit with you and can clearly see obviously for the podcast you won't be able to see <laughs> Paul but there's clear enjoyment when you're speaking that it's, it's clear and evident that you get a lot of um, you know enjoyment and rewards out of of what you do day to day which is fantastic well I mean we do have I think it all kicked off when we got in the Times top 100 places to work in 2009 I think it was total surprise we're always a good investor in people we got a new HR or was my colleague Dennis's daughter who came along and said investing in people isn't the goal the blue ribbon it's the Sunday Times best company stuff can we have a look at that see where the gaps are well, we had a look at it for the submission in they did the survey of the staff and we could not believe we we're in the top 100 com- companies in the country 45th so we thought oh imagine if we entered and we knew what we we're doing so the next year we entered and we came, we're in the top 10 the first, I think still the only company in Hull that's ever been in the Times Top 100, were uh, number one in Yorkshire right now. There's only two or three in Yorkshire. And so that national accolade uh, made us the centre of attention for a lot of people who were looking at the people thing and culture and engagement and stuff. And we we just open our doors. Uh, and it's not a, an ego thing, it's not a marketing thing, it's the fact that you know lots of good people open their doors when we want to go and see stuff elsewhere. So we think it, we're duty bound, if anybody wants to come and see how we do the people thing, we open our doors and let them come and, come and have a look. And uh, it'll never be appropriate to them because we're all different, we've all had different journeys, we're all different cultures. But just that, you know, an engaged workforce will be more productive. You know, most people, even your top people are working 80%. Uh, you imagine if by engaging those people and making them feel like stakeholders, you upped it to only 100%. That's a school group right now, 100 more people free. Now you tell me that's not bottom line business stuff. It's not fluffy stuff, isn't the engagement, yeah. Sunday Times top 100 stuff. It's bottom line business stuff. Having that achievement, shall we say, would you say that's the best achievement the company's ever had or was there something else that stands out that the company might have had over the years? Uh, yes, it's certainly really up there. I'm so proud. So proud it was natural. It wasn't done by initiative, wasn't done by consultants coming and gear. They came to find us as we were. We were a good size. We were 250 odd people when they first came. We're now 500 people. So even though we've doubled in size, we've kept our culture so we're still in the times top 100 because as you grow you can you took coaching get watered down and your engagement can cease uh, so that's a real accolade uh, and we'll continue to be so uh, I think the latest one is 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 signing up to the social mobility pledge because that was pioneered by an MP called Justin Greening down in Westminster they spotted us up in Hull I think through the Sunday Times stuff to say these are really strange people because we don't do social mobility for CSR purposes, a business strategy. You know, we, we've got talented people here who have come from really disadvantaged backgrounds, educationally disadvantaged, and because the penny drops at a certain time later in life, or they've got that drive from a disadvantaged start, they come and really successful in your business. Whereas we feel most businesses are fishing in the same old pool provided by seven GCSEs, two A-levels, a mediocre university degree, hire a very expensive graduate. These guys come in here and we've got guys now on the board and shareholders who come from very disadvantaged backgrounds. That's been recognised nationally by the Social Mobility Pledge. And we've just had this uh, event here uh, in Humber Business Week, which uh, 
which we call The Kid Done Good, and we, we showcase the report they've done on us on social mobility. And uh, we've we got 13 whole, what we call whole icons of social mobility. Uh, you know the Armishield, Ubery, God, John God, but they're all here to say these people are from really disadvantaged backgrounds and everybody recognises them. It's never all over. A poor exam result like my 11 plus result, it's never all over because you come from an estate in Hull and you've not gone to the best secondary school and you've never gone to university, it's not all over. We're really proud of that. That's what you've got up in your head, I suppose, isn't it? And take ride the rough and the smooth. And you said you've had clearly had quite you know, big and dramatic lows in your life, and you've also been riding. Oh, chip on both way. shoulders and all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Touch on the humble business week. Now you founded that in two thousand and five. Was there a particular reason that you founded that, or again, is it just part of you know, getting out, growing, growing culture, and wanting to do something to benefit the uh, wider community? Uh, I think it came from being out in civil society and realising Hull at that time was a, a massive dependency culture. Uh, government income streams in the Blair years were flowing to places that were seen in disadvantage and Hull had more income streams than most coming in, which we worked with. We did the New Deal for Communities programme at Preston Road. We've done the NHS lift for new health centres, building schools for the future. So Sewell as a business have benefited from those income streams. But if if you don't create an indigenous enterprise culture in a place like Hull, Hull's fortunes will, will rely on those income streams. And God, that was prophetic, wasn't it? When the taps were to end off in 2008 and now we've got no income streams, you rely on your, your enterprise and culture. And uh, we did a bit of research in school. We picked three or four secondary schools and, and went into the sixth forms and said, how many of you are considering business as a career? And it was about 6% and that was depressing. So we are, we are, we'd already brought the Yorkshire International Business Convention here the year after Clinton was the main speaker at Harrogate, that wonderful day where that market town in, in Yorkshire was the eyes of the world straight out of the White House. I met the guy who were uh, on a chamber trade mission the year after and I asked him to bring the YBC to Hull and when he'd finished laughing, he thought, hang on a minute, we're paying a lot of money for speakers, why don't we just fly them from Hull to Harrogate and backwards and forwards and use the speakers twice? So in 2004, we had the Yorkshire International Business Convention here. I think George Bush headlined it. Uh, Hans Blix, straight from Iraq, was there. So it's a really big ticket thing. And on the back of having that here, I had the idea of creating a week of business activity that could be called a business week, uh, which focused... Uh, attention just for that week on business in in this city that really needed it and I think we started off with five or six events in the first year and it, it quickly grew to 30 events and uh, and it's become like a focal point of business in 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 the region now and it's been massively successful and uh, and now 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 I uh, we leave the running of it to a, a wonderful local trust that run it now and we have events within it uh, so uh, business week I think is, is, is a week where we can business people can get about and celebrate what we do, showcase what we do, uh, talk to each other, uh, draw attention to the region because we've just had a wonderful business day to finish this business week with Alan Sugar and Jürgen Meyer and people like that. So it does bring the attention to this area which needs a bit of attention and hopefully improves the feeling of business people within it. 
Moving on slightly onto a political spectrum um, to an extent. Now, again, I'm from Reading and I've been here a couple of years. From a lot of people that I speak to, they seem to have a bit of beef with the council. Um, for whatever reason, I believe it's been a Labour council for the last 40 years or such. And a few people say that actually, they're, where they're very old school, it actually possibly to an extent stops business growth within the whole area. Do you think that's a fair thing to say or would you completely disagree with that? I certainly think it's fair now. I think the councillor did a wonderful job getting City of Culture here because they were the main drivers behind that, the main believers in that. When they got it here, they made sure it was a success. They invested in infrastructure, a new theatre, new art gallery, infrastructure in the public realm in the city centre when uh, finances in local government were at an all-time low with austerity. So I, uh, I think certainly in recent history, you can do nothing but applaud this council for the way it's uh, uh, tread whole as a place. Uh, I think there was probably some validity many years ago when uh, there was major income streams coming into local authorities and it was almost, uh, uh, they, they thought at that time with respect the council where the city, I've had to say to councillors, no, you run local government, you don't run the city. The city should be run by a partnership of public sector and private sector and voluntary sector. And if we can get to that, that's Nirvana. And I think we have been edging our way towards that, to be fair, mainly due to austerity, because, you know, I think the government cut the income streams to the public sector. The public sector had to find different ways of doing things rather than just live on big income streams. Different ways of doing things are about collaboration and partnership which is always the way to do things anyway, isn't it? But it forced them into that. And I think now that's happening in the city. I think, you know, power to everybody who's part of that collaboration because we've all got an equal role in making this wonderful city that we showcased as being half decent in 2017. Let's build on that and make sure we're on an upward trajectory and we don't fall off a cliff. Uh, so you say, uh, you know, Liverpool, I mean, Liverpool's European city of culture in 2005, I mean, admittedly, no, luckily, winning the Champions League that year probably yes. probably helped and shine some extra light. But having been to Anfield on and off over the last 15, 20 years, actually to see the development of, of Liverpool since 2005, and I'm aware that's European city of culture, uh, whole, having you know UK city yeah. of culture in 2017, yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. That's when I first started coming up here. And you know, it's, it feels like we just had this, we've had city of culture, obviously we got it until 2021, I think, until it yeah. gets passed off to Coventry. And it is a case of, you know, let's actually capitalise on this. So, I mean, there were some fantastic developments and opportunities coming about in the city, yeah, even more so. Are schools involved in any more major projects that you're allowed to digress, or is it all a bit hush-hush at the moment? Uh, well, it's, it's on public record that we're a driving force beyond the Yorkshire Energy Park, which is the old head and aerodrome to the east of the city. We are the energy estuary, we have a new state of being here. We lost our state of being when we lost the fishing industry through the Cod Wars. We didn't have a state of being for many years, but of recent years, this energy estuary thing with offshore wind, the refineries being on the estuary, 
estuary biomass dracks over there with carbon capture we have this new reason for being that at least we can say nationally or when we bump into somebody on holiday and they say where are you from and you say hull and what does that do then they say well don't be nice to us and the lights will go out that type of flippant comment uh, we do have this renewed state of being and the and the yorkshire energy park plays to that because over on Hedden Aerodrome, we have the big gas pipeline near coming over from Norway. We have the entry into the national grid. So that can that can create a hub of energy intensive uh, uh, industries like data centers that can come and create a hub of people who can direct wire into their energy, missing the national grid out. So you've got energy security, you've got cheaper energy. And if that comes off and the planners allow us to, that can provide a, a, a huge fillip and another proof of we are indeed actually in the energy estuary. So that's one project. Uh, I think we'll still be very faithful to what we do with the public sector. Uh, public infrastructure in this country is still, is still not of a G8 nation because we were the first to industrialise and all our tax take now generally goes to pensions and the NHS. If you want to renew the infrastructure of an in of, a, of an old industrial country like ours, you have to raise whether the government is popular with the government or not. You have to raise the finance privately. Uh, I think the old PFI was done badly in many ways, but we did it very well. Up here, I, I would say that, wouldn't I? But we created real community benefit mm. with the schools and health centres, etc. We brought about that wouldn't be here now. There'd be thirteen health centres in Hull that wouldn't be here if we hadn't created, you know, through private finance, this vehicle called City Care to own and operate these things. So there's still a lot to do in that area. And if the government and politicians get over themselves and realise a game can either be, even football can be played badly or it can be played well, if you play this game well, it will help renew the infrastructure of a country that really needs it. 100% totally agree with you. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally agree with you on that. In terms of innovation, because a lot of people I say a lot of people, it's, it's quite common, you see businesses that remain static even when you've got such a dynamic economy and vice versa. Would you say that for yourself and, and, and for Souls, you're going to keep you know, innovating and looking at different things, different arms that you could put on to the business moving forward? Would you say that's quite fundamentally important as the more sort of streams of income and business that you have, um, that will sort of help to you know, avoid the worst of say recessions moving forward? Mm. Yeah, well, you've certainly got to keep moving forward because otherwise you never stand still, you move backwards. Uh, innovation makes me smile sometimes because I think people think it's techies in rooms in, inventing new apps and stuff like that. It's not. It's 500 people in the school group striving to find ways to do the regular everyday things slightly better. Uh, and in that way, we'll cure this productivity problem we've got in the UK. Uh, we keep getting told we are the, the least productive economy in the, uh, in, in the G8, which means the Italians and, and, and are more productive than, I can't believe they're sleeping in the afternoon, they can't be, can they? So no, we've got, we've got a productivity issue to, to solve, and it's not all about people working harder, it's about smarter use of technology, but it's about innovation in every way from making the tea in there a little bit more effectively and getting it out right through to this new uh, piece of technology that we've we've created at, at, at Sewell of uh, managing the use of space in a building. People come to us and say we need a new building uh, and we can now say well actually we've wired the whole building up and there's your printout that says you're not using the building that you've got effectively 
if you did that, that and that. Now that's counterintuitive to want to build them a new building, isn't it? But we're estates partner with people now. We're on the estate strategy side before we'll ever think about refurbishing or doing an extension or a new building. Let's look how we use the building more effectively, energy-wise, space-wise. You know, let's innovate within the spaces you've got rather than just always cry out for more space. And this is, I think, a pretty pioneering thing uh, that we've now got a lot, lot, big chunks of the public sector estate wired up to when we're able to say, you've got rooms here that you're not using that you said you wanted, no you don't, let's use them for something else. So there's innovation in that way, mm. right down to let's do the team a bit differently. Big innovation, small innovation, yeah. it's all working towards We the call them the little big things. Okay. You know, if, if around the Sewell Group at the moment, we're getting the real little things right, the real little things right, we will have a good business. If we're thinking the little things are too little to concentrate on and get right, it's doing the basics to an elite level. Because if, like football teams, if football teams do the basics to an elite level, you'll have a good football team. It's the same with the business. So realize the whole soul group is made up of thousands of little, little things that are actually big things. And then if you've got that mindset, the bigger innovations will happen anywhere. Bruce Lee mentioned that he's was it more scared of a man that's practiced to kick ten thousand times than a man that's practiced ten thousand kicks once. Yeah, absolutely. They're all building. Well, yeah. Got a couple of questions from a couple of our listeners, then we'll wrap up a couple of quickfire questions if that's okay yeah. for you, Paul. So, looking through them, um, Natasha Arabella Bailey asks, "Do you feel more pressure to succeed now you have an OBE?" Thanks, Natasha, for that one. <laughs> Uh, no, not at all. I think uh, uh, the honour system says you shall use it. If we give you one of these things and you go to a dinner or you, you will say Dr. Pulse will OBE, which is really weird when you first start using it. You think he's getting above yourself. God knows what my mum would say. You know, who do you think you are? Uh, I think, uh, it's a really good point. I think just like being part of the site, the Times, top 100 places to work it raises the quality bar and sets greater expectations so we say around here we're looking at people issue and we can rightly look at each other and say is this how a times top 100 company would act and maybe i should look at myself and say when i'm at the moment of truth where i can act <laughs> not well or well is this is this what an order of the british empire would do will i shame her majesty herself perish the thought so yes, I think, does it, does it give you a, a sense of responsibility? Yes, I think it does. And Sharon Griffiths asked, what got you started in the first place? I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase that. Let's, let's go with the, take the football out of the equation. What, what got you started in Seward in the first place? Was it just that chance of meeting or was there sort of an underlying why that keeps driving you? Uh, I wanted to come back home. I was practicing my art in building all across the north of England and I didn't like the traveling and I wanted to come back home and see my family grow up. So I wanted to come back to my home city because I prefer life around here. It's a genteel, decent, honest place to do business. So I wanted to do that. Certainly not being able to play football anymore was the catalyst. So I had to find something else, wanted it to be outdoors. Uh, and you know, I just wanted to enjoy what I was doing with people. I'm a people type person, I'm a team player. So I wanted a team of people that we could drive towards a goal and it happened to be the chance meeting with with Dennis Sewell in the, the Sewell building family that made it building. And one from 
Aaron, might have touched on this a bit earlier on, but I'll ask it anyway. So from Aaron Nelson, how has, if at all, having an OBE changed your life? Well, apart from driving my geese over Westminster Bridge uh, and having to put it on the end of the, the handle on there, has it changed your life? I think it's got to give you more confidence that other people must have feel you, you're doing all right and the right thing rather than you just think you're doing all right and the right thing. But do you know, just never take yourself too seriously. Take what you do very seriously, but once you start getting ahead of yourself and taking yourself seriously, that's when you are ready for a fall. So that's why they don't call me, they call me Obi-Wan here, not Obi. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and a, a couple of quick fire ones from a seven. I, I, apologies, I must admit, these aren't necessarily the, the best questions, but they always elude the best answers, uh, hence why I ask them. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. I know the best piece, the type of piece of advice I, I give. Uh, but I think, do you know, being told that manners are everything? You know, good manners cost nothing. They get you everywhere. They mean so much. Uh, and I see the le general level of manners actually dropping when I go around the place. I made, uh, I had to go back to the old school that expelled me the other day, which was interesting. Uh, and I got asked afterwards, it all went well, I got asked afterwards by a number of parents with their kids, what would be the tip? And I'd look into the kids' eyes and says, get your manners right, you know, because it makes you emotionally attractive. And if you're emotionally attractive in life, you will get more even breaks than the next guy. So I know that's very simple and very folksy, isn't it? But, you know, having, having manners that go beyond just offering people seats, <clears throat> those unsolicited acts of kindness, the nice comments, make you emotionally attractive. So I think, uh, yes, I think we'll stick with that one. Paradoxically, then, what would be the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, the worst piece of advice I've ever been given, to think, to think building contracting was a way to make a living. Uh, building contracting is a really rough, de tufty game. Uh, we now tend to build for ourselves, our vehicles. We build quality. We build to the right time scale, the right budgets, the right specifications. So these buildings were built. We build sustainability in them. We build operational, you know, sustainability into them. And, and just to build to a contract to a price, which I did for those early years of my life, is just is a way of practicing customer abuse because you're building to a price and you know the price isn't quite enough, but the client only wants to pay that. So when we got liberated and said we would only work in to produce quality buildings, which may more often than not own and lease back to the public sector, uh, but these buildings you go around them 10 and 15 years on the day one quality. They're efficient in their energy, they're efficient in their space utilisation, and they might, we might have paid a few percent more in the initial build, but we've got that back every year in their life. So thinking that you could really make a, a massively successful business out of being a building contractor, sorry you building contractors listening, that's why we produce an estates business where we invest, we do facilities management, we've also got the retail business which brings short term money, cash into the business. Uh, we're built on the Parthenon here, you know, of various disciplines, and those disciplines cross-fertilise each other. So uh, I think betting, 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 the, betting the house on one thing is pretty risky. So we tend to spread, spread our bets in a multidiscipline company. That's not a very good answer, is it? But anyway, well, kind of, kind of wipes out the next question. So the next question was, uh, what top tip would you have for 
people that are looking to grow their business, but you might have just said it there, unless you've got another one up your sleeve. Top tip for people, well, you know, I know this is another really folksy one, but just realise it's the customer that pays all our wages. You know, there's people in businesses right across the place that use customer focus as a phrase. They use customer service as, 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 as something they say. They use the customer service department as a department. But they don't actually get under the skin of it's not the company that pays our wages. It's the customer that does. And if you get a customer that we can go beyond the basic transaction to create a relationship with that customer that they'll keep coming back, that you're giving them more than the basic good, goods or services. They actually feel good about the, the relationship, that you create a customer for life or certainly the long term. Uh, that's absolutely critical in business. And I think once you start forgetting your customers out there, of course, the paradox is, is you've got to look after your people before you look after the customers because it's, the, it's your people look after the customers and we want to create a great place to work so we can become a great company to deal with, not the other way around. It doesn't work the other way around. So I think I've just argued with myself there. You've got to be customer focused, but you've got to damn well look after your people so they look after the customer. Just retrospectively say what are your two top tips is fine. That, that, sounds, that sounds really good, really important as well. And finally, what one piece of advice would you give to someone that is in limbo about making a decision? Well, sometimes a decision is better, a, a, a wrong decision is sometimes better than no decision. I think uh, uh, having a little process to make a decision is, is good. Like, you know, the classic processes gather the relevant information to make the decision on, create two or three scenarios, choose one scenario and, and, and have a look at that in operation and dump it very quickly if it looks like the right one. But getting, getting inertia, getting stultified like a rabbit in headlights, uh, that's always the worst thing to do. Always keep on moving forward. Uh, keep on, in fact, the guy called, believe it or another name drop here, I once had a dinner with a guy called Gordon Ramsay was it the height of his powers and celebrity people queuing up at the I'm talking about the chef Gordon Ramsay yeah, I'll be yeah, yeah. the Gordon Ramsay yeah and uh, I said to him uh, we had a kiss queue of people waiting for waiting for his autograph for their wives of course not for them and uh, the guy was a totally different guy to the guy you see on the television he was gracious he was elegant he was very bright very personable and I said to him do you know Gordon you're not a footballer because he played for Rangers or a chef, you're a bloody rock star, you. He said, I'll have you tell you one thing, Paul. I work harder than either of the other two. I said, but you get so much flack for it, don't you? He said, yeah, but do you know what I think about flack is it never hurts half so much if you're on the move. So he said, keep your eye on the price, keep moving towards the price, and the flack that comes in from the touchline, maybe have a glance at it, but never stop and indulge it, because that's the worst thing to do. And I've always remembered that. Thanks, Gordon. Oh, fantastic place to wrap up. Really, really good. Well, uh, the only other thing to say, apart from thank you very much for your time, really appreciate that. Is if people want to find out more about Saul, how would they go and do that? Uh, well, I'm on, I guess, my personality, hopefully the better side of it is more really uh, revealed on Twitter, at Paulie Sewell. There's the website, it's sewell-group.co.uk. Uh, and uh, visit one of our retail outlets, Soul on the Go, 
uh, that might be another easy way of grabbing the grabbing a bit of the culture. Perfect. I will put links to uh, all of that in the show notes as page. But uh, Paul, really, really insightful. Loads of fantastic advice, I think, for everyone that's listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming to see me. Thank you.